Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. Before we get to this episode, I wanted to talk about probably the most difficult month of the year for the autistic community, that being April, due to... So often, organizations talking about Autism Awareness and Acceptance Month while not centering and listening to autistic voices. I wanted to do something about that to make this April a little bit better for the community. And that's why I'm proud to announce that Autism Personal Coach will, will be presenting STEMI Vibrations, which will be a day to celebrate autistic voices on April 2nd. This event will bring together autistic podcasters who will each drop a brand new episode of their podcast. Between each premiere, we want you to talk about this episode with us in our chat for the event. To learn more about STEMI Vibrations, check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. It gives you not only information about the episode, but how you can register to join us on April 2nd. Now for today's episode, I have a great conversation with Cole Sorensen about his experience of studying special education in college communication that doesn't involve spoken language, and some of the myths of independent living. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Cole, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. I wanted to start off and learn like I do with so many of our guests, is where does your story in the autistic community begin? My path to diagnosis was a pretty complicated one. And honestly, I don't know the full story, but I can share what I do know. The first time anyone suggested I might be autistic, I was probably around five. Starting school went really poorly for me. And although I was able to speak before then, I lost that ability almost entirely when I entered school. My parents absolutely didn't want to consider the autism explanation, though, and came up with all sorts of their own theories about what was going on with me. I ended up with a provisional diagnosis of autism when I was around seven, where a therapist told my parents that was almost definitely what was going on, but they didn't want to take it further and get a proper evaluation. I was in a lot of therapies for a while. I'm not really sure what kind, though I have some suspicions based on my memories of the time. They were all pretty social skills focused. After a few years, I settled into school enough that I regained a little bit of my speech, but it was never really enough to express my full thoughts and feelings. 
I could answer questions pretty well, but initiating communication was incredibly difficult. I describe it like an inertia thing. An object at rest stays at rest unless it's acted on by an external force. If I wasn't speaking, I couldn't start speaking unless I was prompted by someone, usually through a question. So for the most part, when I had something to say, it was a matter of waiting and hoping that someone would notice and ask me the right thing that let me say it. Most of the time, that didn't happen. My parents kept me out of special education, so all the services that I got were from teachers who saw that I was struggling and set aside time to help me. Once I got into middle and high school, that's probably the only reason I managed to pass several of my classes. Honestly, I got to know the special education teacher and spent a whole lot of time in her classroom whenever I had the chance. Finally, by the time I was a teenager, my parents weren't able to avoid the subject of autism anymore, and at the urging of my psychiatrist, they got me evaluated and diagnosed. Around this time, I started really connecting with the autistic community as well. Growing up, a lot of my friends had been autistic or otherwise disabled, but it hadn't been something we talked much about. But by the time I was in high school, I started connecting to autistic people online who introduced me to the autistic community, and I learned that there was a community of people like me out there. It wasn't until I got to college that I was introduced to AAC as a kid, and I took to it pretty quickly as I realized how much more fully I was able to communicate with it. I got involved with the AAC community then too, which was great. Now, you just mentioned that uh, you use AAC, and, you know, something that I think is essential is respecting someone's mode of communication, whatever it is, and, and that respect really should continue if a per person switches from one form of communication to another. So from my understanding, about 90% of the time you use AAC, what, what type of communication do you use the remaining 10% of the time, and in what situations do you use this communication? My communication can definitely fluctuate. For almost the last year and a half, I've been using AAC pretty much 100% of the time. But then this past month, I've been able to access a bit more speech than I'm used to, so I've been using them more. When I do use speech, that also varies. It can be a callalia whether communicative or not. I do a lot of words approximations, just mouth sounds that are almost words but not quite. I sometimes use scripted speech. Or sometimes I'm able to speak without scripting, just in the moment. Most of the speech I do use is scripted though, to some extent at least. If I'm going to speak, I generally will take a few minutes beforehand to plan out what I'm going to say, mentally practice it, think through possible ways that my conversation partner will respond, and plan out potential replies based on the responses I might get. Because of this, I have a much easier time speaking with familiar conversation partners, because I can have a much better prediction of how they might respond and that makes scripting much easier. 
If someone responds unexpectedly and I haven't prepared a response in advance for an appropriate way to reply, I'm generally stuck. Either I won't be able to reply at all, or my brain will throw together some words based on scripts I already have prepared and I won't have much control over what comes out. This can lead to agreeing to things I don't want to do or saying things I don't mean at all. There's also always the barrier of just initiating speech, which varies a lot based on things like burnout and environmental factors. AAC tends to be generally a lot more reliable and accessible to me, but also a lot slower. So I might use speech here and there for a one or two word response, especially in answer to a question. And when I'm mentally able, and when I'm around someone I know very well and who I trust, and when I have time to think and prepare, I might choose speech for longer things too. But generally I prefer AAC. I also don't usually feel like explaining the whole concept of part-time AAC use to people, so I tend to stick to exclusively AAC outside of a few communities, even if there might be times when I can speak a few words here and there. A lot of able-speaking people tend to assume that, since speech is easier for them than typing or using other forms of AAC would be, speech must be universally easier. And so if they see me speak a few words, it's hard for them to understand that. Even when I'm able to speak some, it's a whole lot harder and takes more effort than AAC does, not to mention being much less reliable. I really don't have the energy to answer all their questions about why I don't just speak every single time I meet someone new, so it's easier to just stick to 100% AAC if I'm around people who I don't think would understand. Now recently, Cole, I, I read a very good article that you wrote called No Place for Disability in Special Education, which is about your experience studying special education. In the article, you talked about how prior to college, you knew other disabled students, but never had met any adults like you. What do you see as the impact on your life or in others' lives when meeting people that have many of the same identities that you have? I think it makes a huge difference to be able to see a model of what your life can look like in the future. It's hard to grow up being told that you're different that you can't do a lot of the things that most people can do, and not know what that means for your life. You grow up being told that the goals you have set for your life aren't realistic, but most of the so-called realistic goals that others set for you just sound terrible and leave you with little hope for the future. I knew I didn't want to go along with the goals that others set for me. That wasn't what I wanted my life to look like. But I didn't know what my other options were. I had just been told that the things I wanted to do were impossible for me, too difficult, that I was incapable of them. Meeting older people like me was the first time that I had a model of what my life could look like. It let me see that even if my life might look different from most of the people around me, I could still do the things that I wanted to do. I think every kid growing up needs to have people like them to look up to, and that's especially important for marginalized kids. Absolutely. And 
When you were looking to attend college, I read that your parents fought to keep you home because of the fear that you couldn't handle it, although you eventually went away to attend uh, college. Do you have any advice to to disabled students in talking to their parents when making the college decision? Honestly, I don't really remember how it was that I eventually convinced them to let me go. I know there were some meltdowns involved and a lot of stubbornness. I think my sister helped some as well and helped to get through to them about why they should let me go. I don't know if my particular example is the best way to go about dealing with this kind of situation, although non-compliance can definitely have its place when needed. But what I would definitely suggest is, home and community-based services are really worth looking into and seeing if you might qualify for. After moving out, I didn't access any home and community-based services for the first four years or so, but once I did, I went from barely managing to keep up with day-to-day demands to actually thriving. I've actually started learning how to do household tasks like dishes. I'm able to keep up with prescriptions and make doctor's appointments when needed. I have support to cook and eat meals regularly. The services I'm getting right now are a support worker who helps me with general day-to-day stuff, a person who prepares meals for me every week a home nurse to help me with a weekly injection I take, and then I got some services like help with moving this fall when we were moving to a new place. If you do think that living completely alone without support would be a challenge for you, there are other options that can help you still gain some independence if it's something you want. The rules for who qualifies for home and community-based services definitely do vary quite a bit state by state, and by country of course. Not everyone qualifies, especially in certain places where those services are much harder to access. But a lot of people don't realize it's an option at all, so it's worth looking into, at least, to see if you would qualify. There are ways to access informal supports too, maybe finding someone to move in with who can provide some of that support. It's easy for people to get stuck in a binary way of thinking where either someone can live completely independently with no support, or they can't live independently at all and have to stay with their family forever. But there are a whole lot of other options outside of that. It just might take some creativity to come up with them. And when you got to college, you studied, you decided to study special education. Why was that so important for, for you to, to study? I think mostly I knew how screwed up the special education system was, how damaging it can be to students. And at the time, I thought that maybe I could do something to change that, even if only for the students I worked with. I think in some small ways I was able to do that. I remember during one of my internships in the classroom, I gave a presentation about myself and about autism to a class of middle schoolers, most of whom were autistic and afterwards they wrote down what they learned. I got several comments along the lines of, I learned that being autistic isn't a bad thing, or that it's okay to have a disability. That was a nice moment. But for the most part, 
I realized that so much of the harm with special education is systemic and just one person isn't going to be able to fix that. Even though I didn't end up becoming a classroom teacher, I'm still finding ways to do similar work. Right now I teach a class on self-advocacy to transition age young people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So I'm still able to do the kind of work that's important to me, just not within the special education system. Now from reading your article, it sounds like it was a pretty awful experience studying special education as a very obviously autistic person. What can special education programs do, in your opinion, to make sure that autistic and disabled students have a good experience if they plan to major in this in special education? It was very clear to me once I entered the special education program that nobody had really expected someone like me to be there. That was obvious in both just the interpersonal ways that I was treated by faculty and my classmates, but also in policies that didn't accommodate me. The professors would sometimes talk about the importance of setting high expectations for your students with disabilities, but by their surprised reactions when I walked into their classroom for the first time, you could tell their supposed high expectations weren't actually all that high. So that's one of the big things that special education programs can do. Design your curriculum with the assumption that some of the people you're talking about might actually be in the classroom with you. And if you think that your curriculum might be uncomfortable for a disabled person to sit through, that's a sign that there's an issue with your curriculum, not that the disabled student doesn't belong there. I'm not saying that you can't cover tough topics in class, and heavy things like the history of institutionalization are absolutely important to talk about with future special education teachers, for instance. But something like an entire lesson about all the ways that having a disabled child can be terrible for a family, cause divorce and all sorts of other things, which by the way are a lot of statistics that aren't actually true. That lesson really doesn't need to be included and is just going to be terrible for any disabled student in the classroom to sit through. The way the program wasn't designed for someone like me showed up in policy too. I needed accommodations for student teaching. Normally you need to student teach 40 hours a week for a full semester. I can't do that. My energy is limited. I need a lot more time to prepare lessons than other people, and 40 hours a week would burn me out. I ask for an accommodation. The student teach 20 hours a week for two semesters instead. The first time I asked, the student teaching coordinator didn't think there was even a way to request accommodations, so just told me it couldn't be done. It was impossible. I pushed some more and was told that I could ask my program to petition the State Board of Education on my behalf for an accommodation. That was the official process. So I asked them to do that. My program met and decided that no, they would not allow me to request an accommodation through the state at all. It wasn't just that my accommodation was denied. I wasn't given the opportunity to even request it from the board who would actually be making the decision. 
My program said that a license would allow me to work as a full-time teacher after graduation. So if I couldn't prove that I could teach full-time, they wouldn't give me the opportunity to get the license. I fought their decision for a while, but the stress got to be so bad it took such a toll on my mental health that I was forced to give up. I switched to a non-licensure track and graduated with a degree of special education but no teaching license, so I can't be a classroom teacher. The things my program did definitely violated the law. I wish I had been able to fight it more, but I couldn't. But to go back to your question of what special education programs can do to make sure disabled students have a good experience, really, just look at your policies, look at the ways that they can exclude disabled people, and address those in advance. Don't make the disabled students go through and challenge all those barriers on their own that will just end up forcing students out of your program. Help break down the barriers the student is facing to now, you talked about in your article that traumatic and abusive practices are taught uncritically, and every time you push back on these approaches, you're told you're lacking perspective and expecting something unreasonable. What are some practices that you feel within the special education field should be looked at with a much more critical eye? I mean, I think a lot of what I had in mind when I was writing that were some of the practices like ABA, as well as restraint and seclusion. ABA was pushed hard in my program. I took two full semester classes on ABA, and then we got maybe a 30-minute lecture on restorative justice, and that was it as far as so-called behavior management techniques we were taught. If I had been able to student teach, one of the requirements to pass student teaching and get the license would have been to develop and implement an ABA plan for my classroom. No alternative approaches would have been accepted. I pushed back constantly on this topic from just about every angle I could think of. And the responses I got were always along the same lines. They would respond with, sure. Maybe your alternative suggestion could work for a few students one-on-one, -on -one, but we're talking about managing an entire classroom here. ABA is the only practical option. Or maybe no other intervention has the evidence base that ABA does. Or otherwise, you're only saying this because you haven't been a classroom teacher. You change your mind then. They would suggest that my personal experiences were clouding my judgment, or that I needed to focus just on the data, not on my personal feelings. Restraint and seclusion were similarly accepted practices. There was some talk about the negative impacts of these procedures, sure, but they were always regarded as a necessary evil, as something that could be avoided. Professors would casually share anecdotes about times they'd restrained students, sometimes even men as funny stories. The idea of banning restraint was discussed and called completely unrealistic by instructors. I knew that these messages would shape the attitudes of my classmates, most of whom have gone on to be classroom teachers now. They will have left the program having been taught that ABA is the only effective behavior management tool. 
that restraint and seclusion are necessary to deal with so-called challenging behavior, and these lessons were baked into the fundamental curriculum of the program. And at, at the end of your article, your con at the end of your article, no place for disability in special education. Your conclusion was that special education is beyond repair. If that is indeed the case, what do you hope your future is in supporting the autistic and disabled community? Honestly, the best way I see to support disabled students in schools is through getting rid of the field of special education. I say this for a reason. As long as there is a separate field specific for teaching disabled students, then there will be a division between the education that disabled and non-disabled students get. If only special education teachers are trained in how to support disabled students, then those disabled students will continue to be segregated from their non-disabled classmates. Some solutions, like co-teaching, where both a general education and a special education teacher are in the same classroom, have been created to address this issue, but they're rarely used successfully in practice in a way that actually meets the goal of inclusion. Often you just end up with disabled students sharing a physical classroom with their peers, but still off in a corner, at a separate table receiving separate instruction all day. If disabled students are actually going to be included, general education teachers need to be trained in how to support those students as part of their classroom, not just as another teacher's problem. And we need to completely rethink the way that this support happens, too. Special education is rooted in the medical model of thinking about disability. I'm going to speak now about some things specific to the U.S. special education system, but the concepts apply to many countries. The way you qualify for special education services is through meeting certain deficit-based criteria. Then, the IEP tends to be written based on comparing students to their non-disabled classmates, including setting goals for behavior and social skills based on that. Qualitative are number-based. They are seen as most important, which encourages practices like ABA where data collection is foundational. It becomes very difficult to advocate for more ethical behavior interventions because they are more difficult to collect quantitative data on. There is a quote from Dr. Gloria Lassen Billings, which I love, which says, to understand teaching in the United States is to understand a wholly psychologized field. End quote. The field is entrenched in the medical model, in quantitative data. If we are to support disabled students, we need to rethink the way we do it starting from just the goals we set for them and how we measure their progress towards those goals. Students should be involved in setting their own goals which are meaningful to them, which are based around the skills they need to live the life they want to live rather than the skills they need to and meet arbitrary benchmarks. We need to allow for flexibility in curriculum, rather than assuming students need to learn material in a particular standard order, and not allowing students to progress in the curriculum until they've demonstrated mastery on a sometimes completely unrelated concept in a particular way. 
We need to prioritize communication access as early as possible and provide students with communication tools even when they have access to some speech. We need to treat students as human beings rather than data points. And uh, if any of our listeners wanted to learn more about you, Cole, beyond this interview, um, how can they go about doing so? I think the best place to learn more about me is probably to follow me on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. I'm on Twitter if Sam is speaking. All right, I have two follow-up questions. Okay. So you were talking earlier a little bit about home and community-based services, and I'm, I'm really passionate about home and community-based services because, you know, I think there's, there's such a lack of quality of life support for autistic adults, but I think particularly in home and community-based. Um, you know, one of those reasons I feel is because there's such a lack of providers that really know how to truly support uh, adults. So, so I'm, I'm curious, um, do you have any suggestions on, on what maybe you look for when finding a, a provider um, at, at home or in the community that truly can be helpful to you? And you were also talking earlier about uh, goals for students in special education. And a lot of times those goals occur in um, IEP meetings. And so often autistic and disabled students are really not included in those meetings and creating their own goals. You know, it's your, it's your learning. You should be involved in creating what you, you know, what is important for you in learning. Um, and so kind of what do you think would be some ways, um, as your cat joins us, it looks like, <laughs> um, what would be some best ways for maybe students or their family members to advocate for, for their participation in, in these meetings? But even before then, they are still welcome to join. 
I found school staff will sometimes discourage student participation, often just because they recognize at some level that the way they are discussing the student is very deficit-based. But students have the right to be there and included. It's also important to work with a student on how to get involved, because just throwing a student into a meeting with no preparation can be a really overwhelming experience. Talk to the student ahead of time about the structure and format of the meeting, what the goals are for the meeting, and give the student time to think about what they'd like to contribute in advance. Look through the IEP with them and explain all the components so they understand what's on it and what's being discussed. An advocate for the participants at the meeting to use plain language and explain what they're talking about so that the student can keep up. Advocating at these kinds of meetings is a skill that needs to be practiced as well, and it's something that you can practice over time. Well, Cole, um, it sounds like a lot of executive functioning and uh, self-advocacy is certainly needed for, for those meetings. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I greatly appreciate your time, Cole. Thanks so much for, for talking with me today. Thanks so much to Cole for the conversation. To learn more about Cole, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. As Cole pointed out, sometimes the career path you start out with, you may decide to vary from and do something different from your original plans. Autism Personal Coach has coached so many people to figure out their career path no matter where they are in the process. You can book a free call with me today to learn how Autism Personal Coach can help guide you in this area. A link for the free call can be found in the podcast description of this episode. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will discuss the experience of being autistic and being a professional musician in the orchestra. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.